Lord, we come to you again, and we ask for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our minds. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would break through all of the distractions that, um, that cloud our minds and our hearts. Lord, our hearts are uh, prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. Lord, uh, I would ask that you would, uh, in your grace, draw us close to yourself again. Lord, there is some deep water in the passage that we are um, continuing in today. <coughs> and um, let it all the more magnify uh, the grace of your salvation and that, that you show to us, Lord. And I, I do ask, Lord, that we would be able to uh, take these truths to you in prayer and, and be good Bereans, as it were, um, and search the scriptures for your truth. Lord, we just pray that you'd bless our time, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in chapter 6 still. Uh, this is our last verses of chapter 6 of John, looking at this as a series of Jesus being able to meet our needs. We saw Jesus meet the needs of the crowd by feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. We saw Jesus meeting the needs of the disciples with his presence on the lake as they were uh, struggling against the wind and he came and walked on water and met them there. And when he showed up and got in that boat, everything changed. We have seen Jesus dealing with trying to communicate the ultimate needs that are needed by the crowd that has met him in Capernaum and looking for him to do another miracle of providing manna or bread. And this is more than just to fill their stomachs. As we've talked about, this would be a sign of the coming of the messianic kingdom in their minds. And we continue with that conversation today. And that brings us to the contrast of God's grace that Jesus speaks of here. Uh, when my family went um, out west a few years ago on a, as a vacation, we stopped in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, a little town that's kind of quaint. And it was um, something that was kind of dear to Kelly's heart because her family got stuck in Pagosa Springs on one vacation for about five days. And uh, this was an unplanned stop on their vacation when Kelly was, she high school or college? Oh, 15 years old, okay. And, um, and their, their station wagon, which was towing a trailer through the mountains, decided on its way back that its transmission was just done. And, and it got, they were able to get to Pagosa Springs where there was a garage there. Um, and they had, uh, the problem was, and they found this out a, uh, more than once of trying to uh, get out of Pagosa Springs and back to Wisconsin. And the problem was is that Pagosa Springs is on the other side of the Continental Divide. And some of you understand what that means. The Continental Divide is, is a part of the Rocky Mountains that's, that's a range of peaks that, that makes up a national watershed. So it's a really high 
area, and it's, it's such that, and they were on the western side of this trying to get back to Wisconsin, so, uh, you know, it was like the little engine that couldn't, uh, trying to get up there with uh, this transmission. And so this, this area is a national watershed, which means if you took a bucket of water and, and poured it on the west side of these mountain peaks, that water would eventually end up in the Pacific. If you took a bucket of water and poured it on the east side of these mountain, this mountain range, it would eventually end up in the Atlantic. So it's such a dividing point that water either runs completely west or completely east from that spot, being a watershed. Now, I share that with you because the disciples of Jesus here at the end of chapter 6 are at a watershed moment. They are either going to choose to follow Christ, to continue to follow Christ, and thereby follow him to his death, uh, not in their own death, obviously, but follow him in watching him die, or they're going to follow him, choose to not follow him, and walk away from him completely. And this is a watershed moment, as I said. By the end of our passage, we'll find that many of his disciples no longer follow him. Now, this is disciples in a general sense. Jesus was followed by multitudes. He was followed by um, followers. He was followed by what the scripture calls disciples. And then you have the 12 disciples that he chose. So that was a smaller group of his general disciples. And then, of course, you have his three disciples of Peter, James, and John who accompanied him in some of the most momentous moments of the, the Gospels. But recall, Jesus preaches to the crowd seeking for him to do a miracle of providing bread. And here we'll find Jesus begins to sow spiritual truths of the Gospel with physical symbols that make many of his hearers cringe. Here he's teaching about the vast difference between the manna that God's children ate in the wilderness and God's provision of the sacrifice of his son. So our first idea here is the contrast of provision. And this is contrasting God's providing his children with the manna in the wilderness and what Jesus is talking about of God providing his children with the sacrifice of God's son. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now we're going to, forgive me, we're going to move through these uh, first, the, the verses of Jesus' teaching on um, his, his body being the bread uh, rather quickly here, and we'll get to kind of his explanation of it a little bit. But we see an obvious contrast first in the fact that Jesus is saying that he is the bread that can bring eternal life. Prior to this, he has said that he is the true bread, meaning the spiritual sustenance that we need. This idea of his being the true bread is an important part that he's going to bring back up later in helping to interpret what he is talking about here. 
But we pick up in verse 52 where it says, The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, and he kind of turns up the dial a little bit here, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now we can read here that Jesus turns his statement to say that we cannot have life within ourselves without receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And verse 55, as I said, gives us a key statement pointing to the fact that Jesus is talking about something spiritual and something saving when he talks about his flesh and his blood. He's saying it's true food, it's true drink, meaning it's, it's more than just physical that I'm talking about here. It is spiritual, it is uh, eternal, it's truly significant in the same way that he said before, I am the true bread that came down out of heaven. Of course, he's talking about the offering of his body and his blood as a sacrifice for us in payment for our sins. He continues in verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. For us who live on this side of the cross, this is much easier for us to understand if we, if we have the help of the Holy Spirit. The literal tearing of Jesus' flesh and spilling of his blood was required for our salvation. And, and even those who listened at the time of Jesus' teaching, who didn't understand exactly what he was talking about, they did understand that these ideas require his death. Those of us who have received Jesus as our Savior and have the Holy Spirit indwelling us understand what Jesus is talking about here. We're grateful for the opportunity to be in Christ as he's talking about abiding in him, being identified with him. We're grateful for that. For us who have experienced the forgiveness of our sins, we understand that Jesus is talking about a dependence on him of us abiding in Christ and he abiding in us. It's not hard for us to grasp the idea that we need to constantly feed on Jesus in a spiritual way. Especially recalling Jesus' statement in the previous chapter. In verse 26 he says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And we then feed, if you will, off that life of Christ. Again, Jesus closes his teaching, contrasting himself with the manna which the crowd had been looking for. He was also contrasting their messianic hopes that the kingdom would begin at that time. 
Jesus was proclaiming that his kingdom would not come until after he had offered his flesh and his blood as sacrifice. The crowd was not expecting this idea of his sacrifice, and they took offense with it. You know, I was sharing uh, with a friend this week that, you know, I was going to be preaching through these verses. <coughs> and he looked at me and said, ah, Jesus' best worst sermon. This is the type of sermon that would make a church growth professional cringe. Here Jesus is at the pinnacle of his Galilean popularity. And he throws some ideas out there that stun the crowd. At least stun those who don't have the Holy Spirit working within them. This is where today's politicians or those who are concerned only with growing in popularity would stop back, start backpedaling. You know, they start seeing the crowd going, Whoa, what is this? Are you kidding me? You know, and they start, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. I, you know, that's not really what I meant. You know, is is not is. But Jesus will respond to the crowd the way that he does, the, the way that he responds. It will help us to understand a little more of God's grace and also our sinful hearts, the condition of our hearts without God's grace. So we see in verses uh, 59 through 65 here a contrast of understanding. It says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The works that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless, the fa unless it is granted him by the Father. So we see here first uh, a sad misinterpretation of the flesh. Many of his disciples said this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The statements were hard in the sense that they were offensive, especially for some who had left all to follow Christ. There's a whole range of reasons why some of Jesus' disciples would have considered these statements hard, or as Jesus says later, calls them offensive. I guess some, of, some might have thought that Jesus was literally proposing cannibalism, I guess. Um, all would have known that Jesus was speaking of his death. And, th and this didn't correspond with their idea of the kingdom that, that he would soon usher in, they were thinking. Others might have been offended that Jesus knowingly caused the crowd to be unhappy with him. And this cutting short 
his growing popularity. And this could have disappointed all the plans that they had for him to rule or or the, the bandwagon that they thought that they were jumping on. When they ask later, each, when they ask each other, who can listen to it? They're literally saying, who can obey these words? Jesus asks them, what it would be like if they were to see him ascend? This event would, would be preceded by his death and his resurrection. He's saying that by this point in the future, they surely would not want to have anything to do with him. That is, if they are stumbling over him making some unpopular statements and foretelling his death. Verse 63 makes a statement that acts like a key for interpreting the preceding teaching. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. His teaching assumes a spiritual meaning behind the terms true flesh and and true blood, as we talked about. He's stating that a fleshly interpretation is not helpful. Jesus is also saying that any who are trying to understand without the aid of the Spirit will be lost of being able to understand his words. This is reminiscent of Jesus' statement to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 6, where it says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Jesus was saying then that the Jewish line of flesh, the flesh, was only going to give birth to more flesh. They needed the Holy Spirit to give birth to spiritual life. This is tied in with Romans 9, 16, in which Paul writes that a person having a relationship with God is based on God's mercy, where it says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The ESV study Bible makes this note. It says, the flesh is completely incapable of producing genuine spiritual life. For this can only be done by the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit works powerfully in and through the words that Jesus speaks. And those words are spirit and life in the sense that they work in an unseen spiritual realm and awaken genuine spiritual life. So this leads us to the life-giving work of the Spirit that Jesus is referring to here. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So just, let's look, we're going to look at some verses here that talk about God's word bringing life. And Jesus is saying, what should have happened here is that my words should have brought life if everything was there that needed to be there in order for them to do so. But, but again, let's look at some verses around. For instance, just think in the creation account in Genesis, we're told that God brought life into existence by his word. 
Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 when he was tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread. And these verses originally spoke to what God wanted the Hebrews to learn from the manna that they were fed by in the wilderness. And we read in Deuteronomy 8.3, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you <clears throat> with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah models what should be our hunger for God's word. He says, your words were found and I ate them. Your, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Other passages express for us God's confidence that his, wor his word will accomplish all that he plans for it. We read in Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out, of my, out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then we read in Jeremiah 23, 29, is, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And you're probably familiar with Hebrews 4.12 that says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's no wonder that Jesus has said, My words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are. God's word is powerful. The words Jesus spoke were powerful. It is effective. And God's word is necessary to be saved and truly live. And, and it's, it is an honor for me to bring it to you. I feel honored to bring God's word. And this is part of the reason why I'm, I'm overly cautious to try to make sure that I am bringing to you God's word. This is why I stand up here with notes. Because I don't want to go off on some tangent of my mind. I don't want you to get my words. I want you to get God's word. That's what changes us. From Jesus' teaching... His disgruntled disciples should have gone through a checklist. Okay, it should have been, I've listened to Jesus' words, which should bring life. It's the work of the Spirit that gives life. If I'm not experiencing life through his words, I must not have the work of the Spirit. But I think they were too dead to that. This causes us to ask the question, why is it that some are not effectively changed by God's word, even if they were spoken by Jesus himself. The issue falls into the sovereign work of God. And Jesus explains it. 
First, we read in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, this is John parentheses or John's commentary, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then Jesus follows up in verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So some of Jesus' disciples, broader than the twelve, were not believing in him. Recall last week that Jesus had said the problem was that so many had saw him, but yet did not believe. And he promised in verse 40 that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, he said. And we talked about how to believe means to entrust yourself completely, that Jesus does what he says that he does. And John provides us with this explanation that Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe in him. He's talking about his, his general disciples here, as I mentioned. Jesus was aware of which ones truly trusted in his teaching. And the previous verses told us that it was the spirit that gives life in order to believe. Further, John tells us that Jesus, even from the start, knew that Ju Judas would betray him. And this is why and where Jesus gives the explanation again that makes us squirm a bit. But he places this statement about God's sovereignty on its landing spot by saying, this is why I told you. Knowing that some of those disciples that had been walking with him, hearing the very words of the Son of God himself, and yet don't believe. Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. We described this last week as God is the initiator of salvation. I appreciate how the NIV puts it that a person must be enabled by the Father. We must be enabled by the Father in order to be able to believe the gospel. I'm not talking about getting on the Jesus bandwagon, okay? These disciples had done that, and now they were jumping off as soon as it slowed down or it wasn't fun anymore. What we don't like about this fact of, we don't like this fact of God initiating salvation that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And, and let me explain to you part of the reason why I believe we don't like this in our Western culture, okay? Because it's, it's clear in Scripture that man has a responsibility, a moral responsibility to choose whether or not he believes the gospel. So man has that responsibility. And what is the term responsibility made of except but response and ability? Okay, so think of it this way. If you have the ability to respond, you have a responsibility to respond, right? We don't make infants responsible for feeding themselves. 
Because if you say, hey, the bottle's in the fridge, go get it. They don't have the ability to respond. So we don't make them responsible for that. So we have a problem with this doctrine that Jesus is teaching that he states, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father because we know all people are responsible, morally responsible, to choose whether or not to follow Christ. But yet, according to what Jesus is saying, He's saying they don't have the ability to respond unless it's granted by the Father or enabled by the Father, as the NIV says. But we have this situation in our culture where someone is not able to respond, but yet they're responsible. Okay? If a person who was drunk hits their spouse or drives 50 miles an hour over the speed limit, they're not going to stand before a judge and a judge say, it's okay, you were drunk. You were under the influence. You weren't able to respond. So therefore, I'm not going to hold you responsible. Right? Any judge would, should get thrown out for, for taking that position. We understand that a person can be unable to respond by their own decisions and yet held responsible for their actions. And this is what we don't grab a hold of as, stiff, as strongly as we should, and that is sin has so marred us. Our sin nature has so marred us that even though we have the moral responsibility to respond to the gospel with belief, our sin nature makes us unable to respond to the gospel unless we are enabled by the Father. It is those that are quickened by the Holy Spirit that will respond to the gospel. We should look expectantly for the work of the Holy Spirit in those that we share the gospel with. We should pray for our loved ones and our family members looking expectantly that that phone call could come that says, I was dead yesterday and I'm alive in Christ today because the work of the Holy Spirit can do that. We should pray for our loved ones and our neighbors and our family members, that they would be enabled by the Father. We should be careful not to give someone a false assurance of salvation if we do not see the work of the Holy Spirit there. What we see next is a contrast in choices made by those in whom the Spirit is working and is not working, as Jesus tells us. In this passage, in ver- beginning in verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed something. Good passage from Ephesians 2, let me share. About our drunkness in our sin. No, the Lord must not want me to, never mind. 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We see in this passage, sadly, many stopped following Jesus. When we're told that many turned back, it literally means they went away to the things that they had left behind. They returned to their former beliefs. In other words, they, they walked away saying, this guy is not the Christ. It must be somebody else. Luke 9.62 tells us, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back, Jesus said. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In our passage this morning, puts his saying this into perspective. It's not that Jesus is only looking for men and women who are ready to grab hold of the gospel and never let go. That's true on the outward sense. But on an inward sense, those who are fit for the kingdom are those who have been changed from death to life by the Spirit of God. And these people never look back. We read that at least 12 remained. I'm sorry, at least 11 remained and believed. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus' question here is what's called an interrogative participle which basically means a rhetorical question. It means he was expecting a no answer. This makes sense because we've already been told that he knew who did not believe. And Peter's answer, he answers for all 12 of these disciples. He calls Jesus Lord or Master, recognizing his right to rule over them and they recognize that there is no one else in whom we might find salvation as well as they understood it at that point his statement about jesus having the words of eternal life harkens back to verse 63 where jesus said the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life here peter recognizes that Jesus is the Holy One of God, meaning just simply meaning he's something special. He's, something that, he's someone that God has set apart for his purposes. Later, Peter will make another statement of more significance in Matthew 16, 16, where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But Peter is somewhat pretentious or assuming in his understanding of the hearts of the others. All of them are nodding their heads in agreement. 
but one does not have the work of the Holy Spirit within his heart and mind. In fact, he is an emissary of the devil. We see that at least one remained and in unbelief. As Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I appreciate how John throws that in there. One of the twelve. This only speaks to the blindness of our hearts and minds without the grace of God. We're told in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Look at how Paul words that. How blinded do we have to be to not be able to see how all the ways he describes us the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And here Judas has been walking with Jesus for years next to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God and doesn't see it. It only speaks to the heinous effects of the sinful nature. But look at the grace of verse 6. <clears throat> For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what the difference is between those two things? Blind to God's shining light past our blindness. Same message, same glory of God, glory of Christ, same light. It's just a matter of His grace shining past the blindness. Our need for God to open our eyes to awaken us out of death is illustrated by the blindness of Judas. Without the light of God in our hearts and minds, we remain blind. And this should cause us to thank him all the more for his grace. You know, kind of like <clears throat> when a barn, a horse barn is burning down, if you don't cover the horse's eyes, It'll just run right back into the fire for some reason. Or it won't come out. Except God's got to open our eyes. And then we get on the outside of that burning barn and we're like, thank you so much because I would have stayed in there. I would have been happy to stay in there. I'm, I'm going to explain this with maybe kind of a corny illustration, if I can. Um, but kind of like how we talked about the rope last week, we talked about the fact that 
that salvation is like a rope that, that is connected up in the attic but then comes through the ceiling as two ropes. And one of those is God's sovereignty and the other one is man's responsibility. And, and they're so far apart that we can't grab both of them at the same time. And by the nature of it, if you pull too hard on one of them, if you take, make scripture say something that it's not saying, then you're going to shorten the other. This is kind of an illustration in that way. If you think of man's responsibility when it comes to salvation, man's responsibility to choose Christ, and the fact that man will be judged based on whether or not he chose to receive Christ as his Savior, think of that like being the surface of a body of water, okay? And if you think of God's sovereignty over salvation, think of that like being the depth of the body of water. I guess you'd call it the, the, the bottom of the body of water. Um, but see, this picture here makes it too, it, it's not an accurate representation. We can tend to make the issues of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility too simple. Simple is probably not the word. None of this is simple. Uh, we make it so that it's something that we can understand and that we can be more comfortable with. Okay? Um, I think this is what we're doing when we simply say, well, God is drawing everyone and people have to choose. That's not what Scripture tells us. I think we make the same mistake when someone says, well, God chooses someone and it doesn't matter if you share the gospel with them or not, or if it doesn't matter what they do, they're just going to be chosen. That, that, that is a travesty as well. And those are just examples, if you will, of bringing the surface and the bottom of that uh, body of water closer than where Scripture brings them so that we can simply touch both. The reality is, is that this is, and this is what I mean when I say, this is deep water. The surface and the bottom are far, far apart. Meaning, in our finiteness, we can't touch both at the same time. Scripture is full of statements, like what Jesus says in our passage, that no one comes to me unless it's granted by the Father. And that, that these are statements that represent God's sovereignty and salvation that is infinite, that we can't really know where the bottom is there. That's why the arrow is there. Yet we're told in the book of Acts and other places, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about his heart for the Jews and how his heart for the people that are following the law. And he says that he will follow the law if necessary, it, that by all means, he says, I might save some. Okay, this is the man that wrote in Romans 8, those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But what is his practice? I will become what I need to become if I might save some. Peter tells wives of unbelieving husbands to submit to their husbands saying, so that even if 
some do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. We are involved intimately in God's salvation work. And we're called to be involved. And we're called to share the gospel. And we're called to let the hope that that someone might better understand the gospel and be saved because of our conduct. We're called to have that effect and change our behavior. We're called in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for all types of people because God desires for all types of people to be saved. We are called to be involved. So, Scripture gives us these big ideas of God's sovereignty and salvation that are like, you know, mind-blowing. Okay, so we can, this person is not drowning, okay? If you can see that, this is us. We can investigate those. They're made to make us grateful for God's grace. We're made for us to be like, how do you do that? Okay? But the fact is this. We live on the surface. I gave us a little boat there. We live in the doctrine of man's responsibility. We live under the need, under the call to share the gospel. We live under the need and under the call to watch our behavior and and to try to present Christ through our lives. We live in the area of our responsibility before the Lord to choose to follow Christ. Someone is held responsible by how they respond to their responsibility to choose whether or not to place their faith in Christ. As D.L. Moody put it, and I've shared this before, when he was asked by a lady, she asked him, so what do you... How does God's sovereignty in salvation affect the way you share the gospel? D.L. Moody said this. He said, ma'am, I pray as if it all depends on God, and I witness as if it all depends on me. We should be grateful for God's grace. That's where doctrines like this should take us. Gratefulness for God's grace, like I said, Like that horse, we would be running right back into the burning barn. And we should be all the more be desiring for others to know that grace. 1 Peter 3.15 is one of the best. To me, it's, it's the passage for evangelism. And the command in those verses is set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. And the result is always being ready to make a defense to explain the hope that is in you. Always being ready. That's what we're called to be. Let's close in prayer.